Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have Russell Sturgis on the show. He wrote a book on the roots and the history of the tarot. Is that, did I get that right? The tarot of the book? Well, it, it's, the name of the book is The Spiritual Roots of the Tarot. Spiritual Roots of the Tarot. So thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So, so this, like I mentioned earlier, this is a topic that I've really been wanting to cover. Um, especially I want to do a show that, that focused on the 22 trump cards and the journey of the fool. Um, before we jump into that, though, uh, I have to ask, what got you started on uh, this spiritual journey of the tarot? Uh, um, my background is, is um, uh, Mormon, in fact, which is um, um, in and of itself an interesting story. Um, which I was very involved with, and my father had been my minister most of my life, and um, um, he died when I was 29, and I had a series of dreams where he came and taught me about universal love in a language that hadn't been familiar to me in the Mormon context, and um, at the end of one of these dreams, he said, this is the last dream. Is there anything you want to ask me? And it's sort of like, hell yeah. And I said, the, the most pressing question for me is, is how does Mormonism fit into truth? He said, well, it's easier for me to show you than it is for me to tell you. And he took his hand, he drew a circle, and there was a golden light about, I don't know, 10 foot in diameter, and it was so brilliant that everything became translucent. And he said, he said, son, that's truth. And then he took his finger and he drew a little circle that was about the width of a hand, um, and he said, um, that's the Mormon church. He said, my advice to you is go and find the greater truth. And that literally became the catalyst for me then going on a journey of finding an expanded truth. As it turned out, just a couple of months later for Christmas, my mother gave me a book called Teach Only Love, written by Dr. Gerald Jampolsky, um, who was very Course in Miracles based and ran a centre in Tiburon in California, working with children with catastrophic disease. And this was during the 80s. And he was also doing a lot of work with um, people who were dying from AIDS. And he was out in Australia. Um, I read this book. A couple of months later, he turns up at a relaxation centre in Brisbane and gives a talk, and I'm there. And I'm just fully aligned with everything because everything he wrote in this book was what my dad had been teaching me in these dreams. And so next thing, um, cut a long story short, I'm in Tiburon, California, and I'm studying with Jerry. And then the opportunity came to study with a lady in Washington, D.C., and, and it was also associated with his attitudinal healing, but she did a lot of work around symbolism and Jungian archetypes and all those mm -hmm. sorts of things as part of the work we did. I was introduced to a book called Jungian Tarot. And, um, and given that I came from a very religious background, Tarot was the book of the devil. You didn't have anything to do with Tarot. You know, it was sort of like, <laughs> it's evil. And so, you know, and I'm given this book and I'm open enough now to see what's there. And I read this book and, and Sally Nichols, the author, is talking about the, in particular, the, the Trumps, the 22 picture cards and how they have this sort of Christian overtone or undertone to them. There, there's this link. And this really sort of inspires me. And 
as a result of the work that I did with Susan, I um, Susan Trout, I was I was doing meditation and I was working on um, mandalas and and sort of doing all these sorts of things and um, and dream analysis was really big at this particular time as well and and I had this dream um, and this dream was quite a catalyst for my whole life journey where I was. I was out hunting sort of an anaconda-sized snake. You know, if you remember that movie, yeah. that huge snake. And I'm out hunting this snake and I corner this snake and no matter what I do, I can't kill it and, and it stays alive. And next thing, the dream changes and the snake is chasing me and eventually the snake corners me and, and no matter what it does, it can't kill me. And it's this this whole sort of sense of, oh, hang on a second, this is a major life transformation because snakes are about transition and transformation, the way that they shed their skin and the orbis, mm-hmm. the, the way the, the snake swallows its own tail. And, and, of course, what I found out was that there's this landscape, this figure eight version of the snake, and that really captured me for some reason. And I started drawing mandalas with the snake and I started incorporating the mages of the, the arcana. By this stage, I'm going to hell anyway because I've left the church <laughs> and now I'm in the tarot. And, and my world was changing. That snake was, it was saying, your world's about to go upside down. And, um, um, and so I spent years sort of doing this stuff. I learned about this um, program of attitudinal healing and I came back to Australia and introduced that. And this is about teaching people um, about meditation and mindfulness and awareness. And I did that all through the 90s. I was running a free um, program in my hometown, um, helping to expose people to that work. And with that, my own philosophy continued. Eventually, I decided I had something to say. And I went and, I went and lived in Italy for a year. I, I went to southern Italy, a little village halfway between Rome and Naples called Montesembiaggio. And I then started researching. It's actually not far from where my family is from. Oh, okay. Whereabouts? <laughs> They're from a town called Montemitro. And, no, and it's also know. right between Rome and Naples. Okay. Well, that's where I spent nearly a year was in that area. And Terracina, Fundi, mm-hmm. um, Gaeta, all of those areas there, was that was my stomping ground. And um, anyway, um, while, while I was there, I actually went to Monte Cassino. I was told to go there because it's just such a beautiful cathedral. And, and, and they still did Gregorian chanting. So I went to this cathedral with, and I'm in Italy with the intention to write this book, and I'm sitting there waiting for this sermon to start because I wanted to hear the Gregorian chanting. And, uh, you know, once again, here's a Mormon now in a Catholic cathedral. I mean, I'm really pushing the boundaries here. And I'm sitting there, and next thing I hear this voice, and it says, welcome back. You've come back to finish something that you've started. Now it's time to finish it. And it was like this real sort of, um, blessing to say, go and start your writing and do what you've got to do. You're going to be guided in this. And so this is when I first started writing. This is back in 2006, 2007, where I first started doing all my research. And I self-published a book back then. And it became the basis then over the next 10 years in the work that I um, did with that that led me then to writing this version. And it's a much more expanded understanding of it, which is the spiritual roots of the tarot. Right. I know that's a bit of a long-winded um, how I <laughs> got here but that's the truth you know to to get from being a a good mormon i was one of those guys that knocked on doors back in the um back in the late 70s uh-huh. and uh you know and here i am now um 
talking about tarot, but one of the interesting things, Gary, is I don't read tarot. I've never read tarot mm. and I probably never will. Um, what I did do was deeply study the symbolism of the major arcana and what I was able to do was to reveal a deeper understanding of that that sort of um, isn't traditionally part of the tarot mm. world. Yeah. So we've, so my listeners, for those who are not familiar, can you tell them what the major arcana cards are and how they are different from the rest of the cards in the deck? Sure. Sure. So um, basically there's there's two sets of cards within a, a, a tarot pack. You've got what's called the minor arcana, which is um, the closest thing to a regular set of playing cards where you've sort of got, you know, all of your numbered cards and you've got your, your um, king and queen and, and that type of thing. They came into Western Europe um, at the end of the 14th century, beginning of the 15th century. They emerged in Western Europe from the east, um, probably the Arab states, but they ended up in the West around that particular time. At the same time, a set of 22 picture cards emerged that later became known as the Major Arcana, but they were known as Trump, Trump cards. And what we know is that at, during this time in Italy, the, the, the humanists who were writing were talking about the Trumps and they were talking about the way in which different things trump other things in terms of life's experience. And this was, they were looking at the philosophy of life. So it was no coincidence that a set of cards emerged that were called Trump cards. Mm. And these were a set of 22 cards that, that, that sort of indicated this, this triumphant, um, rise of consciousness where one thing triumphed over the other. Now, look, there's a, there's a, I love this story and I love telling, I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's a great story. And, and the story is that the cards were combined to avoid paying entertainment tax. So in other words, when you played cards, you had to pay entertainment tax and they would frank the ace of spades which is why even to this day the Ace of Spades often has all the paraphernalia written all over it. Uh -huh. But it would be the Frank card. And if you were found playing cards without that, with the tax Frank on it, you could get into a lot of trouble. You could be fined or sent to jail. So the story goes that these other 22 cards to help um, prevent people having to pay two lots of tax were combined. And, and so we ended up with this these set of cards that um, – Combined became a game, and certainly for the first 150-plus years, the cards were used for playing games. They were mm -hmm. not used for esoteric purposes. It wasn't until we get to the end of the 1600s, the 17th century, that they start being used for esoteric purposes. Now, that being said, the 22 picture cards, which are the trump cards, um, I'm making the claim that, in fact, they were essentially portable stained glass windows for a group of people who became um, um, not only marginalised, they were called heretics and exterminated by the Catholic Church. And, and it was my sense that, that their teachings that were housed in manuscripts, because they didn't have buildings, so it wasn't like you could walk into a church or a cathedral and, and see um, stained glass windows or paintings on the walls or on the floors or on the roof or those sorts of things. So they didn't have sort of that comic book literature that was seen on the walls of churches and they had it in manuscripts and at the time when they were being wiped out both in terms of as people and as a theology by the, the Catholic Church they would have gone underground and I'm making the claim that their theology was translated into these 22 picture cards and that in fact what this is is a deep Gnostic Christian spirituality that um, has been lost 
for hundreds of years because it got caught up in esoterica and and but in fact is the deep spiritual mystery um it, it incorporates um um, the, the Gnostics were very, or the Cathars, as, as they called, were very aligned with the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount are the eight Beatitudes. And I kind of like to think of the eight Beatitudes as the Christian eightfold path to enlightenment, you know, the Buddhist concept <laughs> yeah. of the eightfold path. Well, the Beatitudes is the Christian eightfold <clears throat> path. And the Cathar captured their deep meaning in these picture cards. And so um, I make out very clearly in my book how which cards relate to the Beatitudes and what they mean and what's that about for people on their deep spiritual journey. Okay. So they're not so the cards are not actually from Egypt. They have uh, any look, type of you know, pagan roots. <laughs> I look I, from my perspective, no. No. From my perspective, no. Um I I you know I've spent over a decade now studying these and meditating on them and researching them and uh, the history that I've been... And the, the beautiful thing about my book is that I've been able to research really concrete history that supports why certain images were being used because they've got to have a context. And so if you look at the Marseille Tarot, which resembles the Visconti Tarot, the, the, the Visconti Tarot are the earliest that we have, or, or there's a couple of others, but let's say that the Visconti are the earliest. Mm -hmm. The Marseille Tarot become a canonised version and a more sophisticated explanation of what was in the original Visconti cards. But from those cards, we get a sense of what was happening historically. And, and my book explores what was happening in northern Italy, particularly with the Visconti family and the things that were going on for the Gebelines and, and the Guelps and what was happening between the emperor and the pope and all of those things. We see all of, you know, we have an emperor, we have a pope, we have a popess. You know, Matteo Visconti's cousin was appointed as the first popess in this northern region of Italy. It's sort of like, hang on a second, you know, we, we actually have a rationale for why these cards are here and how they relate to what was going on in Milan at this particular uh -huh. time. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a popus. Yeah, so, um, so uh, she's called the high priestess in the yeah. modern tarot. Um, so a whole lot of the Christian ones um, changed. The pope didn't, but the, the house of God became known as the tower. And so all of a sudden we sort of got this languaging in there that, that um, as, as the, the, um, um, the, the more modern versions of the card started to emerge in the um, 1700s and in the 1800s, they started to move away from these Christian-aligned languages mm -hmm. um, and, and started to form sort of uh, new words that, that were less Christian-oriented. So the Pope became known as the Hierophant the popess, the high priestess, uh -huh. the house of God became the tower. So they took away all of the Christian names. But its roots is very Christian, but it's Gnostic Christian, I'm going to suggest. Interesting. So so would you like discredit, you know, like something like this, like the Rider Waite deck as not being valid compared to the original Italian decks? No, no, I th I think that that Rider Waite is valid as a as a tool. Um, um, I like um, Sally Nichols um, sort of is using the, this idea that that these images are hooks 
where we can hook on our narratives and hook on our our um, desires and 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 fears and those sorts of things, and we're able to use those still in a very valid way as a tool for helping people to understand what's going on. You know, I've, I, what I am, I mightn't read tarot, but I've studied numerology for for forty years, and so mm-hmm. what I have is this really intimate understanding of the way in which the quality of numbers represents those things. So. I'm not adverse to the idea that that, that that exists, but in terms of a what I would call the 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 deep spiritual journey and meaning of of the cards, I don't believe that the Rider Waite really captures in the same way the deep essence um, of of what was being um, delivered as stained glass windows in the in the um, the, the Visconti and then later uh-huh. on the Marseille Tarot. Mm-hmm. Um. So how how does this all play out with the twenty two cards? Let's kind of do a quick run through of them. Like I know okay. we got card zero, which is the fool. Um, right. So, so he does in the original ones. He doesn't even have a zero, and the reason he doesn't have a number is because he's not stationary. Mm-hmm. He's moving. He represents you and I as every man, every woman who is on the journey. Right. Okay. Now, card one is the magician. And um, the magician, uh, excuse me, sorry. <laughs> Who is it? It always happens. Right? <laughs> My apologies. Um, the the uh, magician, um, the, the, the Visconti were a funny group of people because they, they bought into um, Greek and, and Roman mythology as heavily as they did Christianity. And, of right. course, they had become excommunicated by the church because they were they were heretics, ultimately, as far as they were concerned. And they were politically aligned with the Gebelines, so, so that didn't help. But, but so, so the, 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 um, um, the magician represents Hermes or Mercury. Okay. And, and so he was a magician, but, but he was also a guide to the traveller. And so it's sort of like card number one um, is the guide to the traveller. And, and so this is about the beginning of the pilgrimage. And he's basically saying, you're about to come into a world of illusion. I'm a trickster, mm-hmm. and the things that you're about to deal with are illusionary. And the four things that you're going to be dealing with, and in his hand, depending on what you're looking at, which card, but he's got a coin and a wand. The coin represents wealth. And the one represents power. He said the two biggest illusions you're going to be dealing with are wealth and power. On his table are cups right. and, and, and swords or, or wands or, or knives. And he's saying, and love and, and success, the knife is about etching out success, those things are also illusion. None of those things are real. They're only real in the illusion. Uh-huh. And so the 56 cards, the minors, relate to the world of illusion. Right. They're, okay, they so all deal with, with, with practical earthly yes. matters. Absolutely. And that's perfect. You know, we need those things from time to time. But what the majors are saying, well, when you're ready to um, uh, become non-attached to the issues or the values of the world, there's a spiritual journey. And, and so here's what happens. We, we, we then um, have the Pope S. 
And she's, we're still in a sort of a limbo land at this point, and this will mean more in a minute. And the Pope S goes, well, you're about to come into a, a human consciousness and you're going to, um, and they were reincarnationists, the Cathars. So they, she has a book and she's sort of saying, well, you've learned this, 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 and this. Here's your opportunity to learn the next thing. And this is in the book of life. And she said, you're about to go to your mother, who's the empress, and then you're going to go through the journey. And so the next card is the empress. She gives birth to the fool, and then you've got the emperor, the pope, the lovers, and the chariot. All of those things represent the emperor, represents power. At that particular time, Clement V was all about money. As the pope, he was about accumulating wealth. He was trying to take it away from um, um, the, the, the king of France, who wasn't mm-hmm. particularly happy about that. Um, and, and so I talk about all those things. Then we have the love lovers card. Um, I have a, a much deeper sense of that um, in, in, in the sense that the lovers represent the loves that distract us from agape, which is divine love. And that's eros, mm-hmm. which is romance, storge, which is um, 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 the um, affection that we have for people, mm-hmm. and philia, which is about empathy or, or compassion, which is sort of family-type love. And, and so these are the loves that distract us from divine love, which is agape, and then you've got success. You know, the charity is about the victor. And and so this is all about all things to do with the illusionary world. Now, the interesting thing is what the cards teach us is that if you buy into the illusion, then you're going to be subject to the next three cards. Uh Justice, natural justice. Now, you would know, I don't know if you know this, um, in Italy when I lived there, I came across a a pastry and it was called a boomba. <laughs> and um, my understanding is boomba means big bottom, ultimately, or one of its meanings is big bottom. And, <laughs> and it was basically saying if you eat these puppies, you're going to get a big bottom. That's uh-huh. natural justice. You know, if if you drink too much alcohol, you're going to cause give yourself psoriasis of the liver. That's natural justice. So so if you do excess with these things, you're going to experience a natural consequence. The next thing says, um, no matter how much you try to avoid it, you're going to have to deal with old age. And we have an old man walking um, and he's got a lantern and he's heading um, west. He's heading in the opposite direction to the cards, which means back in that period, um, um, you've, you've got the philosophers sort of talking about life being a day where we're a baby at the beginning of the day and we're an old person at the end of the day mm-hmm. at night. And so here we see the old man carrying a lantern and basically the, the Cathars are saying, you're going to get old. You can accumulate all the wealth you want and all of those other things, but none of them are going to mean diddly squat you're going to die soon. And then the third one that we're going to have to encounter if we're in this illusion is the Wheel of Fortune. You know, now we've just had a major example of that with COVID-19. You know, people were happily going along in their lives and all of a sudden, bang, the wheel turns and people's lives have been t- turned upside down. Right. So so if you're buying into the world of illusion, then these things are going to impact on you. Now, what's interesting is if you're not buying into the world of illusion, these things are going to have less impact. And if they do impact, it's not going to worry you that much because you choose peace as a priority already. You've chosen joy as and happiness as a way of life. It's not a consequence or a result. And so they have less impact on you um, if you've moved into the spiritual realm. But while you're in this realm of the illusionary world, which is cards one through 10, 
Um, now, one of the things that I was able to do was the hat that's worn by the magician is a lemniscate. It's a figure mm -hmm. eight on its side. And same with card number 11, which is the strength card. She's got the same hat. Right. And what I realised was that was unlocking the way in which the cards were to be laid out. So card number 21, which is the world card, sits right in the middle. And then cards one through 10 is a circle off to the um, left of, the, of, of the, the world card. And cards 11 through 20 are a circle off to the right, mm -hmm. coming back around from the bottom, going around to the top. And what we end up with is this figure eight on its side. And it changes the relationships to the cards. It changes the message so that, for example, we go, we've got the world card and, and it's got four different, it's got a bull, a lion, an eagle and an angel in each of the corners. I go into what they're about in a lot of detail in the book. As we go through the magician and we come around to the emperor and we've got the pope and then we've got justice, time and chance, and we come back to the intersection, we can go one of four ways at this point now. We can stay where we are, which is where the majority of the world is, and that is antidepressants, drugs, alcohol, consumerism, um, excuse the French here, what I call new age shit and glitter, <laughs> Um, you know, where we just get caught up into stuff and we mark time. We don't go anywhere. Um, the other choice is to go back and recreate the illusion. We call that midlife crisis, although it seems to happen much earlier than midlife now, where we go back and try and recreate it all again with the sports car and the younger partner or wife or, uh, you know, living in a hippo suburb or something like that. We try to recreate the illusion. Guess what happens? Anytime you're into the illusion, Justice, time and chance are going to pop their head up again. And they will keep beating you down until you've broken that spirit of buying into the illusion. The other direction you can go is suicide. And that's where the um, justice card is, um, where the um, judgment card is. And you see the man in the in the, in the um, coffin in the ground. Um, that's about suicide. And then the other option is the one that the Cathars were teaching, and that's the dark night of the soul. And that's the journey where you're encountering um, um, strength or force. And what's beautiful, this is, a, this is a billboard for what you're about to go through if you choose to go down this path. Because what she's saying is, I'm just a, a, a sort of a, a woman who obviously has some class about her, the way she's dressed, but I've found strength to hold open the mouth of a lion. And what they were saying is that's the strength you're going to need to go through the dark night of the soul. And so then we've got the hanged man, which is the beginning of it. And this is where the Beatitudes comes in. So the hanged man represents blessed are the poor in spirit. And then we've got what's called the death card, but it has no name, in fact. Um, and what we see in the ground is a king. We see a, a, a victor. We see the pope with his three fingers held in his hand, with the, the pope's hand with his three fingers mm -hmm. hold up, held up. We see a, a gentle hand maybe of a woman that represents the illusion, and you've cut your attachment to those things. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Then the next card is is um, temperance and she's pouring water which is filling the cup now you've emptied it out you've been turned upside down and now this is blessed to the meek for they shall inherit the earth so this is about humility and being teachable and then we go to um, now that you've learned those things now we've got blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness this is the devil card so this is the point at which you your passions for things of 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 the human experience either overtake you or now you hunger and thirst after 
um, um, social justice. And this is about feeding the hungry and, and giving water to the thirsty and, and clothing the naked and those sorts of things. And then you go on to the house of God and then go through the star card, the moon card, the sun card, which is about enlightenment. This is the treasury of light. So you go through the dark night of the soul, move into the treasury of light. Now, I want to point out two things that was really unique about these cards. The devil is holding a flaming sword. Now, I don't know about if you had much exposure in your um, childhood or even now to um, um, a biblical concept, but Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. They choose to be differentiated. They make choices to separate themselves out from God. So I love Joseph Campbell refers to God as undifferentiated consciousness, where there is no, all there is is one. Mm -hmm. Adam and Eve partake of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, duality. They now have differentiated. God says, you can't hang around here. While you're, while you're fear-based in your differentiation, I don't want you eating of the fruit of everlasting life. Um, and so he, he kicks them out of the garden. He says, you can come back in, but there's going to be two tests that you've got to pass to end up back into the garden. And they are a flaming sword and, and a cherubim. And he places them at the eastern gate. And he says, for you to get back into the kingdom of heaven, you need to pass these two tests. Now, I don't know about you, but I never attended a sermon by anybody that says, well, let's learn about the test of the flaming sword and the cherubim in order to get back into heaven. Interesting yeah, no, enough. I haven't heard that one. <laughs> the Cathar, the Cathar had it in their card. So here's the devil at the gate of the house of God holding a flaming sword. So this is the Abrahamic test. So this is the test where Abraham's asked to go and sacrifice his son Isaac by cutting his throat and then burning him on an altar. That's the flaming sword. And, and the reason that he was asked to do this because God was questioning Abraham's allegiance. And the reason that God had reason to do that was that Abraham, and this is, this is sort of modern psychology stuff. Now I love this. Abraham is estranged by his father and the king puts a, puts a price on Abraham's head and Abraham's got to leave. So he doesn't get executed by the king because of the falling out with his father. And so he's got a deep wound, father-son father, deep wound. And, and, um, and to help appease that, he convinces Lot, his nephew, to go with him. So he leaves, takes Lot with him. Time goes on. He's wanting his own son. God promises him that, doesn't come, and eventually he has a son, Ishmael, to his wife's, to his wife's handmaiden. And so he's got this other sort of quasi-son. And he gets to 100 years old, and he sort of says, now, God, you keep on saying I'm going to get a son, and it's a big joke. He's so hung up on the need for a son. And eventually what happens? Isaac comes along and God says, well, I don't know if you really love me enough or you're more interested in your sons than you are me. You have a narrative. And so what I want you to do is to go and sacrifice your son because he doesn't have to do it. Now, this isn't just a um, sort of a Jewish tradition. This is a tradition that belonged to the Greeks, the Etruscans, the Romans. All of them had this, the, the father or the parent or the king sacrificing the son or daughter. I translated that into modern vernacular, and we each have a seven-year-old, which is the, the narrative that we each have about who we are and how we turn up in the world. And at some stage, we're going to be asked to sacrifice our seven-year-old, which is, in fact, our narrative. So my narrative was, in order to justify being a little different, 
Now, I, I don't know what it would be like in America, but um, I was raised a Mormon in a beer drinking and football playing environment, and I didn't fit <laughs> in at school. You know, I was a bit different. And I was raised with, my mum was into natural therapies and naturopathy, and that's my background and my training. I went to school, most other kids, I don't know if you know what Vegemite is, but it's, it's, it's sort of a yeah. black taste that they put on that um, um, plenty of Americans have been around me and they have tasted they can't imagine why anyone would eat it. And Australians love this stuff. Most kids that go to school with Vegemite sandwiches. I went to school with homemade bread and I had slices of apple with grated carrot, cheese and sultanas. And that was my sandwich for lunch. I would have swapped it for Vegemite sandwich just like that, but nobody wanted my sandwiches. So I grew up being different. And so in order to justify being different, some people withdraw and hide. In my case, I work hard to earn the respect of people. I was in the school musicals and won the lead role in every year in the school musicals. And um, anything that I did, I did to 120%. You know, I just went over the top to prove how good I was at doing those things. I carried that behaviour on into my adult life and I paid a price for that. And the price for that was I ended up being 140 kg. So if you go 2.2 pound per kg, that's nearly 300 pound um, that I was in weight. Um, right. You know, just massive in terms of a big man, more, more than that. Um, I, I, I ended up divorcing. <laughs> I uh, went into bankruptcy. I was in depression. My life just, but that's the hanged man. Right. I was at the place of the hangman, and and that was the point at which life began to turn. But I had to let go of the narrative. I had to actually um, execute or go through the ritual of um, um, removing the narrative of the seven-year-old. Unless you do that, the seven-year-old will keep you caught up in the world of illusion, and you won't be able to enter the house of God and into go into the temple. Now, once you get into the house of God, then you've got the star card, then you've got the moon card, the sun card, and the glory of God or the judgment card, and that's all about light, and that's enlightenment, and they're all different phases of enlightenment that you go through in the temple. Um, and, and this is partly based and reflected on the Jewish tradition of the ancient temple. Um, but, but once again, these are all married in there, and you're learning how to adapt. Um, um, forgiveness is the, is the star card, for example. Um, um, and being a teacher is the moon card and um, the, the, the um, Hirius Gamos, which is the marriage of the Christ consciousness and human consciousness is the, is the sun card. So these, these are ex explaining how to then come back in into that higher place of consciousness. But, and then the judgment card is the cherubim. So here we have an angel blowing a trumpet, Michael the Archangel blowing a trumpet. There's a flag on it. It's got a golden cross. This is about who we are physically, mentally, emotionally and spiritually being brought into its highest expression, which is Christ consciousness. Cathars didn't believe that Jesus was the saviour. They saw Christ consciousness as the saviour. Jesus was a prophet to them. Um, and so they didn't see him as the saviour. But being aligned with this higher consciousness is what it was that saved you and brought you back into undifferentiated consciousness where you became one with God again. Um, the interesting thing is if you look on the world card, uh -huh. there's a mandala. You, so that's an almond yeah. shape and that's a sacred yoni. And the only face of God 
or aspect of God that the Cathar recognised was the sacred Johnny or the 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 vulva of the sacred mother, mm-hmm. and that the Christ would enter back through the vulva to return to the presence of God, whatever that looked like. They didn't say what that was. So the only, which is interesting, that it's a feminine um, character or symbol that represents the face of God, so as to speak, in terms of our human experience being reintegrated with the divine. One of the interesting things about the cards is out of those 22 cards, there's 12 female or female-associated images in those 22 cards, which during that period of time was totally inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what got the uh, Templars in trouble too, was feminine worship. Well, the Cathars were right in line. And in fact, um, not every uh, Gnostic Christian group were this way, but certainly the Cathars of southern France and northern Italy, um, the majority of them uh, esteemed women as equal with men, and they had the same rights in the church as the men. And so that was really unusual, so much so that they were prepared to appoint a popess. That was the, that was the evidence that they, that they honoured women equally um, with men. So... In the path to enlightenment, like, uh, like one of the, I think the hardest things that all human beings are faced with is trying to balance materialism and survival with the path to enlightenment in the spiritual path. Um, it, it's really difficult to do both at the same time. And you seem like, 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 like you pointed out too, at that, at that center, it breaks off. And it's, it's like you either choose one or the other. So it's almost like either you give up everything and follow this spiritual path or you just continue living your life, but you cannot have both at the same time. Um, is, is that a correct interpretation? Is, is one way well, or the other? Or no, is there a way to do both at the same time? Same time, yeah. So the, the, the House of God card is a tower, and um, the crown is, is lightning striking the tower. The crown's coming off, and there's two people falling out of the tower. This is the scripture in uh, Matthew where um, Jesus said, um, if you're going to sort of follow what I'm saying, you're going to have to give up your home, you're going to have to give up um, your relationship. There won't be husband, wife, parent, child, mother, father. You're going to give up your lands. So he's saying you're going to have to let go of all of these things. He's not saying that you're not going to have relationship. You're not going to have attachment to these things. So in other words, you'll have them, but you won't be attached to them. Uh-huh. And um, and so, but then he says something interesting. He says. If you do this, you will be blessed a hundredfold. Okay, so if we go back into the Sermon on the Mount, he says there, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. And he's just been fin- he's just finished talking about material things, the things of the world. Mm-hmm. And so what he's saying is you will have those things, but you won't be attached to them. So in other words, they won't become important to you. And so you won't be driven by the need for wealth or power or love or success. What you'll be driven by is your spiritual values and you will be given what you need to sustain your life. Unfortunately, what happens is we can't imagine that 
And so we go into this with the fear that we're going to have nothing and we have this consciousness of need. And I love Neil Donald Walsh in Conversations with God. He says what happens is when we plead um, about need, um, the universe, God says, well, I can give you all the need you want and we keep on experiencing need where, uh-huh. in fact, um, if we shift our focus to how we serve and how we turn up and make a difference in the world, what the scriptures were suggesting is that there's a capacity for life to bless you in a way where your needs will be met mm-hmm. and that there will be sufficient. Um, how, and that was how, about people, how about people, and, and I know you, I'm sure you've come across it, and I've come across it. In fact, I think I've sometimes even experienced it where I, I've chosen that materialistic way. And, and you kind of mentioned it too. You just, I just get crushed over and over and over again. And at a certain point, it's like, all right, I'm tired of getting crushed, so I'm going to try the other way. Uh, all the time. And and because what I saw in and because I'd been through it myself and what I'd seen in other people, one of the things that came out of this is I developed, and, and I'm going to be um, sort of push my own button here a little bit um, in, in terms of self-promotion, but I developed a program called the Enhancers Awareness Program. Mm-hmm. And and if, if people want to know about it, just go to eapmentor.com. And, and it's basically helping people, mentoring people through this journey through the dark night of the soul. That's literally what we do is help people do this in an aware way. In other words... Um, do it in a way that is reflective of self-love and and is based on, and and I talk about Western mindfulness um, as opposed to Eastern mindfulness. This is a journey of Western mindfulness. And my definition of Western mindfulness is remembering in each moment that you have the choice to be more loving to yourself, to others, and to the planet. And so what happens is, you start to become more aware and mindful of the fact that in each moment you can choose to be more loving to yourself and to other people. And that comes off the back of learning how to forgive, learning how to seek understanding, learning how to see opportunities to help people in need and to respond to that. Um, Sounds Sounds like Buddhism. Sounds like? Buddhism. Yeah. Yeah, it, but it's a Christian version of it. Right. <laughs> uh, well, a Gnostic Christian version of it, let's say. Um, but it's, it is. It, all of these paths are leading to the same sort of thing. They're just absolutely beautiful. Absolutely. Well, I went in search of a Western model of this, and that's what this was all about, was right. finding a Western model of mindfulness. So, you know, um, probably like yourself, I have a daily meditation practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but my meditation practice, I use the hanged man and the death card and temperance and the devil and the tower and the star, moon, sun. And those cards are in my little altar space. I have a dedicated altar space and they're there. And I contemplate and meditate on those things every day for the sole purpose of reminding myself that I can choose to be more loving to myself, to others in the planet in each decision that I make throughout the day. That's what my practice is about, is that my day can be more love-centered in the choices that I make. So so we, uh, what we need you to do is to clone like a million of yourself and all of you move here to America. <laughs> well, if you all go and buy my book, it's all in there. <laughs> so in other words, you know, everything that I'm talking about is written in that book. I know the name's really obscure, The Spiritual Roots of the Tarot. 
But it's much more than tarot. It's, Way it's more. The deep, I, I was yeah, surprised. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> It, the name doesn't do justice to, but I don't know what you would call it. The, um, but but um, it, it's so profound and so deep, and it's what I've been living um, certainly for the last decade. And um, um, and I live a joyful life. I I have um, each morning I wake up with the joy of what this day brings for me, and and I make a difference, a profound difference in people's lives just through walking with them in a gentle way. And I have a joyful, loving relationship relationship you know what it's like to be in a relationship with somebody and you both understand that when you're out of stillness you're in your own story you're in your yeah. seven-year-old narrative and so if that rises in the relationship one of us will joke together and go okay seven-year-olds turned up or we're at the point where we go hang on a second my narratives just come to the surface. If you can see something in here that helps you helps me to understand I'd love that or I need to sit with this for a bit. How, do you know how wonderful that is to be in a relationship where you take responsibility for your experience and you don't blame anybody else? I, I do, yeah. Like, like the way I usually typically catch myself is I see myself like I'm acting like my father would act, and I'm like, ah, <laughs> oh, shit, I gotta stop. <laughs> that's not what I want. But that's where we get it, and in fact, the emperor card is basically saying, as a fool, you've been conditioned by your father, the emperor. Mm -hmm. And and you've got to you, we're programmed by the age of seven. The Jesuit says <laughs> used to say, "Give me a boy until he's seven, and I'll give you the man." Mm -hmm. And that's what it is for each of us. You know, by the age of seven, we've been programmed about how life is. Um, so much so that many of us end up marrying our own parents. Um, in in the, the the nature of the people that we uh -huh. or the antitheses of it because we're trying to avoid it, but it's just the flip side of the same coin. You know, it's it's kind of bizarre just how strong our programming can be in terms of the things that we do and say. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's very so, true what you said there. <laughs> so, but we can use things like the tarot and meditation to deprogram. Absolutely. That, that's kind of what, what this is all about. Well, for me, that's what I use it yeah. for is, is to take these and help me to see that there's an alternative. And, and the, the key about mindfulness in the Western perspective is to see that you have a choice, but the key is we call it pragmatic laziness. The pragmatic part is seeing that you have a choice. The lazy part is follow the path of least resistance. Yeah. So if the path of least resistance is to still be angry or to still have the cigarette or to still do what doesn't serve you, then do it as long as you've stopped and considered mm -hmm. that there's a loving alternative. Now, the reason that that's so powerful, neuroscience and all the latest research helps us to understand that each time we think about the self-loving alternative, we're building a new neural pathway. Mm -hmm. And there's a point, there's a tipping point where we come to this place of choice and we may have spent a year thinking about the self-loving alternative and all of a sudden the, the, the choice is there again and we're following the path of least resistance and this time the path of least resistance is to go, no, I'm not going to go down that route. This time. Exactly. Like, like, like when I think about like the path of, of least resistance now, like, like you mentioned, like the cigarette, you know, like if I'm s smoking a cigarette and it's making me cough every time I smoke it, obviously the path of least resistance is not to smoke the damn cigarette. <laughs> you know, well, it, the it's the one that, that tends to keep giving the least repaining is to usually yeah. the one that's meant for me to go. 
So, so that's one of the things that we do. So the nice thing about this approach is we're not saying you've got to use will and discipline to change your behavior, except the only will or discipline is to stop and be mindful of the fact that you have a choice. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and that's what you've got to do is stop and think about what the choice and what the benefits would be versus the habit and what the impact is. You know what the impact is because you live it. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's about stopping and remembering you have a choice. My morning meditation reminds me that I can stop and know what the choice is. Right. So have you dived into any of the hermetic aspects of the tarot? No, I haven't. No, um, I've been very blinkered. And when you read my book, you'll see why. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it's a, there's so much in this book. Most people can read a page or two at a time because there's so much history, so much yeah. symbolism. It, it's that, dense. That, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've really had to. Um, and if you think this one's dense, I changed my writing voice for this one compared to my first one. It was even worse in terms of. <laughs> but that was about my story, you see. It was written from my story. Um, but as you experience, there's a lot in this. You can't just sit and read this from beginning to end. Some people could, but most people can't. Um, and, and so I haven't ventured much outside of my area of focus and my area of expertise. Yeah. Right. Or you could be like me. Like I read the, the first chapter, skimmed through the middle, and then read the last chapter. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, that's one way of doing it. And uh, <laughs> you, you would have got the real essence of it. Um, you know, and, and, and in fact, I write the book by basically giving you the end at the beginning anyway. I mm-hmm. sort of explain where this is going to be taking you right from the very first chapter. But, uh, yeah. Cool. yeah. So, so how will this – there's a lot of questions here, actually. Like one is how does the mindfulness – what, how, how do you get people to even think like this? It, it's almost the opposite of way people think right now. Everybody yeah. right now is focused on money, power, success, and not catching COVID and dying. Yep. yep. So um, ultimately the way that this happens is um, um, critical mass. Okay, um, I just wrote a blog just recently called "Did Greta Thunberg Cause the Pandemic?" <laughs> and and the essence of the article that I or the, the 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 blog that I wrote was that Greta created a a shift in the critical mass of of the world, um, particularly in Western culture. She impacted on enough people to go where they're all going. Oh, we really need to take care of the environment. But her message was very fear-based. wasn't love-based. It was fear-based. All you've got to do is look at some of her faces and you know there's a lot of anger there in terms of her message. And the result of that was that there was enough people saying we need to make an impact of the world that the world had an impact, but it was the pandemic. You know, one of the things that she was about was stop flying. She was, you know, she was this anti-flying thing she got into big time because of the amount of impact that flying in the world had. Guess what happened? The pandemic stopped international flying just about 100%, not completely, but <laughs> made a fair dent in that thing. And, and the, so the pandemic became what we wanted because the critical mass said this is what we want. Now, they're not so sure they want it now that they're in it. Um, 
So what we actually need is the same thing to happen, but with it being love-based. Now, there are people out there that are teaching a love-based approach to environmentalism and saving the planet and a love-based consciousness to humanity. But unfortunately, the press don't give it airplay like they give the Gretas because there's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no drama in love. Mm-hmm. Love's about peace and stillness. So what am I going to report about in peace and stillness? Who wants to hear about that? People want to hear about other people's pain because it takes or distracts them from their own pain. They don't want to hear about love and peace as a rule. Uh, what we need is a gutsy media to start promoting the whole notion that love and peace and joy are, are aspects of lifestyle that can permeate us as individuals, as communities, nations, and as a planet in terms of the way in which we relate to the environment, that this could be a way of life that we could experience, but it needs a critical mass who are prepared to do that. Yeah, we don't have that. Not yet. <laughs> but I'm putting my hand up as somebody who I've written this book and this is my way of trying to help contribute to the critical mass. Right. Just like my podcast, I think, is also my way of trying to do that too, you know? Cause, Absolutely. You know, I, 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 violence is just going to give you more violence. Even if you think, even if you think you're doing it for the right thing, you're not going to get the right result, the, the result that you want. It's going to backfire. Absolutely. And, you know, imagine if we had had a critical mass where people chose to be more careful of the environment um, voluntarily because out of out of love of the place in which we live and out of love for themselves, um, there wouldn't be any need for pandemic. Um, it, it just, I don't think it would even exist because we would be making these choices and creating this reality anyway. And, and um, people's health would be better because people are in a, a better place. You know, I've been around, I've been in the health industry um, um, all my life um, in complementary health. And, um, um, and I've seen the different states of mind and heart make to the well-being of people. And when people are driven by fear, we see a, a proliferation of disease. When people are driven by healing, we see um, of love, sorry, we see healing happen. And I've seen it on individual and in community levels many, many times throughout my life, throughout my journey. Let's talk about the result of mindfulness. You know, there, I, like I know for me personally, the result of mindfulness is the realization that everything, that, that life is an illusion. It's not real. It, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's bullshit basically. And I mean, I guess at some point I must have signed up for it because, uh, you know, it looked like fun. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, once you're in it and you realize that it's not real and it's just, you know, um, it is what it is, but but it's not permanent. It's Mm. not, and we ourselves are not even who we are, think we are. Mm. You know, ourselves is an illusion. Who I think I am isn't real. Who I think you are isn't real. That's right. Um, because it's just, yep. all it is is thoughts. Everything that, that I, I understand and can conceive is it's nothing more than a thought. It's, it's, it's completely insubstantial. It's, you know, it's void. Um, yep. And, you know, like, like, like I think like that's taking it to the next level. I think, you know, that, that's where the real peace come, which is found. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, I mean, ultimately, um, what happens is, you know, if if um, um, you read the last chapter of my book, then you would have read that right at the very end there. Um, you know, there's a um, a quote, yeah, from Akamaka. Um, 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 Ma, the, um, Mahadevi Devi, sorry, um, the 12th century Hindu poet. When my body became you, there was no one else to serve but you. When my mind became you, there was no one else that I could call upon. After my own consciousness was lost to you, there was nothing else to know. Losing myself and you, you and I cease to exist. And it scares the shit out of people too because they can't conceive of not existing absolutely absolutely and and of course what happens is that that point at which we go through the hideous gamos which is that alchemy it's the hermetic mm -hmm. part of the the christ and that we were we would have been identified as sophia in the gnostic tradition because she was the one that sort of came to earth and got caught up in the illusion so when sophia and the christ go through that sacred hideous gamos that sacred marriage we become the androgyny. It's really interesting if you if you get a pack of um, the Marseille Tarot, the character that's coming out of the grave, we look from behind, is an androgyny. One half of it is masculine and the other half is very feminine. Right. It's got hips and curves and the other half is this sort of very masculine. So we're in this androgyny. And so the whole notion that we exist as men and women is lost at this point. We, we are no longer that. We are now, we are now the Christ consciousness, which is not defined by gender. Mm. It's about being the child of the parent. And, of course, going back into the sacred Johnny at this point, you now become fully integrated into the whole and you don't even exist as the Christ anymore. You now become that which is divine, right. which is mother, father. And, and so that whole concept of that we exist as an entity it just disappears. And the Cathar were teaching that. That was part of what they were teaching. You know, that's one of the funny things, too, when, we, when it comes to gender and, and the, just the even idea of gender. Like, um, you know, it, it's like people forgot that, like, men have nipples. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's like that obvious. <laughs> Well, look, and, and you know, I, I recently did a test, you know, um, there was an online test about testing where I sat on the spectrum of um, um, masculine feminine mm -hmm. in terms of my consciousness. And, um, and, and some of my friends did this and some, are, some, some, uh, you know, some women were really strongly women and some women were really strongly man, men. Mm -hmm. And I was right in the middle. That's you me know, too. And, I think that's I'm us. an androgyny. You know, that's part of my weirdness is that there's this very strong feminine part of who I am, and this very strong masculine part of who I am, and and I I sit right in the middle of this. Mm -hmm. We all sit on that continuum somewhere in terms of what our mix of who we are and how we integrate the world, right. and we just happen to have bodies that that um, 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 turn up in this that is identified as being male or female just by virtue of its physicality. Mm -hmm. But what sits behind that is not defined by specific gender. I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah, like our gender isn't that. even chosen, I think, until, you know, a few weeks into development or maybe even a month, I believe, when you're in a fetus. Most, for part of that time, 
there's only one gender. Yes, yes. If you look at the the, the um, development of genitals in the fetus, mm-hmm. um, it's quite late when when there's specific genders chosen. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, I had a, uh, um, a psychic doing a reading for me one day, and and she said, oh, she said this is really weird. She said um, I'm picking up on something that's really unusual. Did you have a, a sister? You have a sister? And I said no, but. I said my mother had gone full term and and had given birth to a, a girl and then the girl died just within hours of being born and then um, to overcome post you know the depression of that the doctor said have another baby which was me and this woman she just said I just picked up on that so heavily she said that was you you came through as the first female fetus and you were saying to the divine, I do not want to do what I'm going to be doing on this planet as a female. I want to do this as a man. And and she said, you opted out within six hours. You opted out. You took the body, did that thing for six hours, and then you came back and you took on this body to do it as a man. And I'm going, what the? (laughs) And she'd sort of picked up on this other fetus um, and this other child that had gone full term without knowing anything about it. it was very, very weird stuff. Yeah. That, that is interesting. And that opens up like this, like this whole other can of worms. Like when I see see people, um, I don't know, like, like, like the right, you know, like, like people that are against abortion and stuff like that. And, and, and they're like, they almost become violent and are willing to kill over it. But, you know, I think about it, like, if God wants somebody to be born, they're going to be born no matter what the hell we do, because there's no way we're more powerful than the universe. Yeah. So it, it seems and, like and almost like a is, silly thing to fight over. And what you were saying before, if it has any credence, you know, um, this is an illusion, mm-hmm. you know, and, and most of the... The magician, and this is what these guys were saying, the Cathars were saying, this world is an illusion. It's not real. You know, love's real. All the rest of this is we're making it up. We're making it up in our minds um, the whole time. And, you know, so so this whole idea that, that um, you know, any of this um, can be deemed to be right or wrong, um, it ultimately it's, it's either more or less serving and that gives it a whole different meaning in terms of the choices. You know, this either serves you towards being more peaceful and loving or it or it doesn't, and it takes you into a place of suffering. You know, Buddha was all about trying to overcome suffering. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, the Eightfold Path was how you overcome suffering. It didn't have to be reality, and, and that's about retraining the mind. Everything about the Eightfold Path is retraining the mind. Mm-hmm. And that's all we're doing here. That's what the Cathars were saying is you can retrain the mind so you can create a new reality where life is about love and peace and acceptance and seeking to understand, not judge, and not fight and, and, and all of those things. Yeah, yeah. I had interviewed Alain Milo Duquette, and we were doing an, epi- an episode on, on tarot. And I don't know if you know who he is, but he's like, probably like one of the most famous occultists out there. He took over Aleister Crowley's organization, the OTO. And um, we we were discussing it, talking about it, and we talked a little bit about the tarot. And one of the things that that he thinks, and I also, and I I agree, um, is, is there is a definite mix of Eastern and Western philosophy there. You know, it... 
it's easy to get hung up. Like like a lot of people can just get hung up on hermeticism and this whole um, Western view. And then other people get really hung up on this Eastern view. And then there's like people kind of like me and, and some others who kind of, I see the same thing in both. Yeah. So w- when you look at the roots of of the the um, Gnostics um, or the Gnostic Christians, um, it, it, it was the Bogomils who came out of the Eastern Bloc, and they were highly influenced by Manichaeism. And Manny um, was a prophet who um, got a lot of his teachings and inspiration out of the East, and he came back into the West with Manichaeism. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up with this, you know, Origen, who was one of the early um, um, bishops of the, 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 the Catholic Church is in Alexandra, he's teaching reincarnation. You know, so here we see in the in the second and third and, and fourth century in the evolution and the development of Christianity, we see these concepts of the East um, um, coming to surface in the West, even as early as those periods. And the Gnostics certainly right. had a very strong Eastern influence. Um, I would agree with that 100%. Yeah, yeah. And... Um... Yeah, they're they're inseparable, really. I really think they're both two halves of the whole. Because I really didn't even under—I used to do a whole lot of reading on Gnostic texts and Hermetic texts and Egyptian stuff and Greek and Roman mythologies, and it really didn't quite make much sense. But but later on, when I started meditating and getting into some of the Buddhism and stuff like that, then I was like. Ah, now I get this other thing. They're just explaining the same thing, but in a much more long-winded way. <laughs> well, and and basically what my book is doing is it's saying to people who have a passion for the Western tradition that we have a deep spirituality that equates to the teachings of Buddhism that existed. And the the Cathars were known as the good men and women or the good Christians, and that was because they were love-centred in how they approached their lives. The nobles of southern France wanted these people in their communities because they were hardworking, they were honest, they, they were community-based, they paid their taxes. Mm-hmm. These were good people, and they really wanted them. Um, what they did was they showed up the church and its greed and all of the things that was going in the church, and that's why they got rid of them, not for any other reason other than the fact that they were showing up the church as having got caught up in the illusionary values. And and here were a group of people who were sustained by spiritual values um, who were really living that as a way of life. And um, and 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 what the what these twenty two picture cards do did was to capture the teachings, and and what I'm saying is we have those available to us now. I love that these teachings were hidden in plain sight. Right. You know, they, everyone was playing with these things and yeah. they had no idea. Yeah, it, 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 they survived. <laughs> that they survived. Without getting locked up in the basement in the Vatican somewhere. Absolutely. What a great place to put it in a game. <laughs> you know, people were playing a game. It was it was just perfect. It was beautiful. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And this is real Da Vinci Code stuff. It is. It is that that because they really did preserve a tradition right out in the open without you know people noticing. Absolutely. 
and um, and and that's why the book's called the the Cathar Code, hidden in the cards, because basically it's revealing this deep spiritual mystery um, and and the journey and what what's intrinsic to all of that in these images, and they're just beautifully crafted images that really do capture the essence of that deep spiritual journey from a Christian perspective, yeah. not a Jesus perspective, but from a Christian perspective. One of the big questions, though, that I still always have left is, and it's a real simple one, why the illusion in the first place? I don't know that I have the answer for that. I play with that in <laughs> myself. Um, um, but for me, um, one, of the, one of the scriptures in the, in, in the Genesis, in the uh, Garden of Eden story, Adam and Eve have partaken of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they now understand differentiated consciousness. So they know that they're different to God. And God then meets them in the garden or, or they're hiding, and he sort of says, come out, you know, what's the matter with you guys? And they now know they're different. And he says, now you have become one of us to know good and evil. So first of all, there's an us. It's not about, and the us is the collective. He says, and it's about that we know differentiation. We, in other words, we've played with the idea that there's something that isn't God. Mm-hmm. And, but what we know is love. You're still driven by fear, which is why you can't partake of the fruit of the tree of everlasting life. So go out, get your shit sorted out, come back, pass the test of the cherubim and the flaming sword, and you can come back and become one of us. My, based on that narrative, my take on this is that we are God imagining what God isn't mm-hmm. for God to have a better understanding of who God is. Yes. Yeah. I, I'll I, say that again. We are God imagining what God isn't <laughs> in order to better understand. And this is Neil Donald Walsh saying, in the absence of that which you are not, uh-huh. that which you are is not. Yeah, this, that's actually something that has come up quite often in my in my podcast. Uh, I've had a lot of guests say the same thing, that um, the whole reason for it is because it's the, it's the easiest way for God to figure out to know himself, basically, like like we're God, like you know, going through the process of self analysis. And and I also like to take it to this extent. This isn't even real. It's God right. dreaming. It's playing it is. with it's, the it's idea. A dream. It, and it's it, sort of like you think about your dreams. You know, you're in your dream, and it feels real while you're in the dream. Mm-hmm. And you wake up and you go, oh, thank. God. God, that was a dream, or you go, God, I wish that dream was still going, you know. Mm-hmm. But 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 you realize it's a dream, and and I think that really what this is is God dreaming. If, that's if I can be, because so- that's another thing that came up with Lon Lon when I was talking to him. You know, I, I was surprised to find out that he's also was also a fan of uh, Yoga Nanda, uh, okay. the autobiography of a yogi, and in that book he decides he describes God as a great cosmic dreamer. And he goes, okay, well, if God's this great cosmic dreamer and he has this dream of another God, and then that God falls asleep and has a dream of another God, and that God falls asleep, it eventually it gets so far down that it 
that there's no more awareness of that it's sleeping. And then the idea is to, to keep waking up until you get back to the original well, and dreamer. Course, and, and in the biblical story, Adam goes to sleep. And at no stage does Adam wake up in the in the in the Genesis story. <laughs> and and so it's it's like, you know, so Adam is is God dreaming and 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 doesn't wake up. And the whole journey is about waking up mm-hmm. uh, to the realization that this was all just a dream. It's an illusion. And that's why Hermes is the perfect card number one because he's the ultimate trickster uh-huh you know he's he's he he's just saying you know a, a, a trickster is an illusionist it's somebody who plays tricks with the mind and makes it look like something has happened when in fact it's just an illusion and so it's perfect that the first card is 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 the magician as the mind the mind itself is the trick almost absolutely absolutely <laughs> Wow. Well, this was a, definitely a really fun interview. Cool. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. I'm sure it went places you weren't expecting to go. <laughs> you know, none of my interviews ever go anywhere where I expect. Because I, I don't plan anything. You know, I don't write any prepaid questions. I just let the universe do the work. Or I hope it's working through me to, to mm-hmm. create something good. And and that's it, you know. I mean, I I don't really uh, I don't worry about it too much. I just like to have a good conversation and see where it goes. Well, we've had that today. Thank you, because I've really enjoyed um, our dialogue today, and um, thank you for allowing me to be um, um, free and and um, um, spontaneous and being able to to communicate and. <laughs> and talk about these things in the way that we have. Fantastic. Um, Before we wrap it up, where can my listeners find you and find your book? Look, so there's two websites. Um, The work that I do in terms of the mindfulness work, that's um, um, eapmentor.com. In terms of my own site and the work that I do and stuff around my book, it's westernmindfulness.com.au. So the second one has an AU, the first one doesn't. Mm-hmm. And if anyone wants to get in contact with me personally, just Russell Sturgis at me, me.com. And if they want to email me. <laughs> and I'll put those links in the notes of this episode so my listeners are listening. They'll be able to click on them and check them out. And I'll also post a link to it, your book in Amazon so they can purchase it. Fantastic. Appreciate it, Gary. Thank you so much. Thank you. Is it daytime there? Mate, it is right at the moment. It is twelve thirteen here. Is it warm out? I mean, it looks sunny. It's summer. We're we're in summer here. Um, um, oh, where where are we now? February. Yes. Yeah, so we're they're coming towards the end of summer. And um, I had an interview um, this morning with somebody in America, which uh, was four o'clock <laughs> my time. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> Which is why I asked if we could do it a little bit later. But um, yeah, so so we're at the other end of the day to you guys, and um, yeah. Wow. Well, you're lucky to have some nice weather because the weather here is shit. <laughs> it's just cold and raining and cloudy. <laughs>
No, we've got beautiful weather. And I'm actually out west at the moment at my where my mum is, but I live on the coast and um, I live on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. And it has to be one of the best places in the world to be during a COVID situation because we just have beautiful beaches. And yeah. Well, amazing. let me know if you have room for, for one other person. <laughs> Always. <laughs> if you can get here. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll have to take, build my own boat, my own ark. <laughs> there you go. Right there. I wouldn't be surprised if that's not happening. Yeah. All uh, right, my friend. Oh, holding on one moment. I'm just going to play the outro, and thanks for being on. Okay. Notice my it's Australian Thank girl. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. <laughs> you can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy T-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life. Because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review and subscribe.